Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about Bach's cantatas composed in Leipzig. Although Bach's work at the court of Kirten had seemed to go well for a while, Prince Leopold's interest in music seems to have flagged somewhat after a few years, especially after he remarried and his new wife did not appear to be much of a music lover. Also, there seems to have been some financial difficulties at court, and when one of Bach's best musicians left, he was not replaced, putting Bach in an uncomfortable situation. In the meantime, Bach continued to find time to travel fairly extensively, for example to Leipzig or Berlin, usually evaluating new organs and often playing recitals. After one such trip to Carlsbad, Bach returned home to receive the shocking news that his wife of 13 years, Maria Barbara, had passed away. This news understandably upset him profoundly and also understandably soured him somewhat on the situation in Curtin. He did manage to recover his emotional bearings enough after about a year and a half to marry Anna Magdalena, an excellent singer also employed by the court uh, and one who may have been recruited by Bach himself. Anna Magdalena became stepmother to Maria Barbara's four surviving children and eventually added 13 others to the Bach family. But although his domestic situation had now clearly stabilized, Bach nevertheless became increasingly interested in changing positions. And in 1722, when the cantor of the St. Thomas School in Leipzig died, Bach applied for the position there. Bach was actually the third choice of the authorities in Leipzig. They had first offered the position to Telemann, whom Bach knew well, and Graupner, both noted musicians in their day. In retrospect, it's not difficult to see why the first two choices may have turned the position down, since it was heavily laden with responsibilities. When Bach became the cantor at the St. Thomas School in Leipzig, he had teaching responsibilities there, although Bach was to hire substitutes to teach the Latin class he'd been assigned, but he also had the responsibility for providing music on occasion for three other churches, St. Nicholas, St. Peter's, and the so-called New Church, and act as music director for the city. So, after a rather involved search process that was not without its intrigues, Bach is finally hired in Leipzig and in 1723 moves his already large family, five children accompanied Bach and his wife, into their new quarters at the St. Thomas School. Although Leipzig was a major cultural center, there were also some disadvantages to the position. Bach had served as a court musician for 15 years, nine at Weimar as organist and concertmaster, followed by six years at Curtin as court Kapellmeister. In both cases, he was responsible for pleasing a single individual, a music-loving prince. But in Leipzig, he was a public servant, answerable to several authorities, the mayor and members of the town council, the pastor and superintendent of the St. Thomas Church, the headmaster and assistant headmaster at the St. Thomas School, and to a lesser degree, the university administration. And many in this group were not hesitant to direct Bach in ways he found disagreeable. Also, there was the question of rank. As Kaplemeister in Curtin, Bach was the second highest paid court official. At Leipzig, he was third in rank at the school after the headmaster and the assistant headmaster. The official salary at Leipzig, including additional fees and honoraria, 
was about what it had been in Curtin, but his children would be given tuition-free access to the St. Thomas School, and perhaps this was the deciding factor, along with the fact that he was now able to turn his attention primarily to his first love, the creation of a regulated church music, providing elaborate concerted music for the church year. On the other hand, instead of a select ensemble of fine professional musicians, Bach's resources consisted primarily of the choir boys of the St. Thomas School, together with 10 to 15 instrumentalists recruited from among the university students and his private students, along with a few professional town musicians of high caliber. About 55 resident pupils who received stipends for singing in the choirs were divided into four groups based on ability they performed in the four principal churches. And working with these mostly amateur musicians, although some of them clearly very skilled, Bach was obligated to produce music for each appropriate Sunday service, plus special feast days, totaling in most estimates at least 60 a year. We'll start by listening to cantata number 78, Jesus by Whom My Soul, written for the 14th Sunday after Trinity. It was composed in 1724, Bach's second year at Leipzig. The text for the opening chorus, tenor, and chorale movement is by Johann Rist. The text for the other movements is anonymous, but based freely on Rist's hymn. The gospel for the day is about the curing of the ten lepers. The cantata text makes little direct reference to that gospel reading, but it does seem to be about self-doubt and overcoming it. The text for the first verse, the opening chorus, Jesus, by whom my soul, through your bitter death, from the devil's dark abyss and from the heavy distress of soul, has been mightily torn free, and by whom I have been made to know this through your kindly word, be still now, O God, my refuge. The opening chorus is in the key of G minor, and it's both somber and complex. It begins with a ground bass, a repeated chromatically descending bass line starting on G, which is easily heard, and which later appears elsewhere in the instrumental texture. Rhythmically, the movement is in the style of a sarabande, a widely known 18th century courtly dance. The altos enter first with the text employing a cleverly embellished version of the descending chromatic line and are immediately imitated by the tenors. After four bars, the sopranos quote the chorale melody while the other voices weave around the falling bass line. Although the chorale melody plays an important role, as it does in so many bacantadas, it's that descending chromatic line which dominates the movement, found in the instrumental ritornellos as well as throughout the choral textures.
You may have noticed that I'm using a different recording here than in the first two episodes. My examples in those episodes were taken from a series of recordings by the Holland Boys Choir Netherlands Bach Collegium, conducted by Pieter Loisink, chosen in part because the chorus employs boy sopranos, which Bach would have done as well. But as I mentioned in the first episode, there are a number of excellent recordings of the Bach cantatas, and for cantata number 78, we're going to be hearing excerpts from a recording by the Bach Ensemble under the direction of Joshua Rifkin. The following movement, a soprano alto duet, is one of the most delightful Bach duets in all of his cantatas. It's warm, beguiling, cheerful, a wonderful depiction of hastening with faint but eager footsteps. The text says, We hasten with faint but eager footsteps, O Jesus, O Master, to come to thine aid. Thou faithfully seekest the ailing and errant. In the middle section, Ah, as we raise our voices to beg for help, may thy gracious countenance shine upon us. Even the contrasting middle section draws on some of the same musical ideas as the hastening with eager footsteps theme, and a return of the original idea is beautifully elaborated and ornamented. This is truly an extraordinary duet, with each phrase unfolding with impeccable, one could almost say inevitable logic. And yet, the whole duet remains fresh and compelling after multiple hearings. It's no wonder that the piece has proven irresistible to instrumentalists as well as vocalists, and a number of creative instrumental versions of it exist. The tenor recitative that follows returns to the somber poignance of the opening chorus, with a quintessentially Lutheran expression of guilt. Ah, I am a child of sin, stray I far and wide. The rash of sin that is upon me will not leave me in this mortal life. My will aspires to naught but evil. My spirit will say, Ah, but who will redeem me? Ach, ich bin ein kind der Sünden. Ach, ich irre weit und breit. Der Sünden aussatz. So an mir zu finden, verlässt mich nicht in dieser Sterblichkeit. The tenor aria that follows is in a similar vein, somber and intense, but fairly quickly the mood changes rather dramatically along with the text, 
As the text begins, the blood that cancels out my sin, the music is serious and intense, but when the second half of the opening line is introduced, makes my heart light again and sets me free, Bach immediately switches gears to a light, airy, almost dance-like musical phrase. It's truly a remarkable shift in style, and yet makes perfect sense for a composer who is as sensitive to changes in mood, even line by line, as Bach is. The remainder of the text deals with some serious issues. If the hosts of hell call me to battle, then Jesus stands by my side, so that I am encouraged and victorious. And the music for this section is correspondingly sober, but it never completely loses the buoyancy of the earlier phrase, makes my heart light again. Contributing significantly to the musical interest of the aria is the flute obligato. Initially, it manages to sound somewhat severe and unbending, but when the tenor soloist shifts gears to the lighter, more dance-like style, the flute is right there with it, almost bubbling over with joy. The long bass recitative that follows, dealing as it does with the wounds, nails, crown, and grave, has some very dramatic passages, although its message overall is reassuring to the Christian. We'll hear only a little bit here. The bass aria that follows, featuring an elaborate and well-matched obligato oboe part, is solid and tuneful, although perhaps lacking in the expressive nuances that characterize the duet and tenor aria we heard earlier. The text begins, Now you will calm my conscience that cries against me for vengeance. Yes, your faithfulness will fulfill it, since your word offers me hope. 
Cantata concludes with a traditional chorale sung in four parts, with the choral parts doubled by the orchestra and featuring the text, Lord, I believe, help me in my weakness, let me not despair. You can make me stronger when sin and death assail me. I shall trust in your goodness until with joy I shall behold you, Lord Jesus, after the battle in sweet eternity. So many great cantatas were composed in Bach's many years at Leipzig that we'll just be able to scratch the surface in this episode. But the next one on our list, BWV 80, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, performed in Leipzig in 1728, is one of the most famous from that period, even though it appears that Bach began work on it many years earlier in Weimar. This cantata represents a return to the so-called chorale cantata approach, in that the featured chorale melody, a very famous one, probably Luther's most famous, plays such an important role throughout the cantata. I'm once again going to change the actual order of movements in the cantata and play the final movement, the four-part rendition of the famous chorale melody itself, first. Reformation Day was a major festival in Leipzig in Bach's time, so it's no surprise that he was able to call on large-scale resources and produce a big, rather magnificent-sounding opening movement. It's in the form of a somewhat old-fashioned motet employing fugal invitation from the beginning of a theme which is in large part based on the filling in of some of the leaps of the famous chorale melody. 
The tenors began and are followed by, after five bars, the altos, with the sopranos and basses following along in place. But it isn't long before the chorale tune makes another appearance, this time in the instrumental accompaniment and in its original form, that is, not the embellished version which the voices began the movement with. The tune appears first, played by a pair of oboes, and is imitated canonically, same pitch but different octave, by the bass of the continual part, usually an organ pedal, possibly doubled by cello or double bass. This imitation of the theme in the lower part of the texture is, by the way, something which is often difficult to hear. In this recording, the oboe parts are doubled by trumpet, giving the theme a better chance of penetrating through the texture. The trumpet parts, along with the tempanium parts you will hear, are thought to be a later addition by Bach's son, Wilhelm Friedemann, probably under the senior Bach supervision. The text reads, A mighty fortress is our God, a good defense and weapon. He helps us freely out of the distress that we have now met with. The old evil enemy earnestly plots against us. Great might and many forms of deceit are his fearsome weapons. On earth there is none to match him. you follow a monumental opening chorus with a duet that is perhaps a little less monumental but absolutely bursting with energy. The next movement, a duet aria for soprano and bass, is a new addition for Leipzig, not found in the rather more limited version of the cantata originally performed in Weimar. The text for this movement is not taken exclusively from Luther's hymn. The bass soloist text is provided by Zalmo Frank, the Weimar court poet we've mentioned before, while the soprano paraphrases Luther's second verse. The bass sings, All that is born of God is destined for victory. Those who by the blood-stained banner of Christ have sworn faithfulness in baptism gain victory forever and ever. While the soprano, quoting the chorale melody, sings, By our own power nothing is accomplished, we are very soon lost. The right man whom God himself has chosen do you ask, who is he? He is Jesus Christ, the Lord of Sabaoth, and there is no other God. He shall hold the field of battle. Musically, the duet in D major begins with one of those pulsating, perpetual motion figuration patterns of 16th notes in the violins, which features a lot of repeated notes, but from which a solid melody nevertheless emerges. The vocal section begins with the bass soloist, who delivers a long ascending melisma, primarily in 16th notes, matching the rhythmic energy of the instrumental introduction. The soprano comes in next and quotes the famous chorale melody with occasional faster-moving embellishments sprinkled in, especially before cadence points. 
There may be less harmonic variety than one might expect in this duet, since Bach is fully devoted to having the chorale tune present in the original key, but the rhythmic energy of both the driving orchestral accompaniment and the sometimes frenetic bass solo carries us beautifully through from beginning to end. A somber tone is established in the dramatic bass recitative and arioso movement that follows, as Frank's text warns us that the war against Satan's army and against sin in the world is a continuing battle in which we are all enlisted to fight. Following that recitative, we have a soprano continual aria which, for the most part, sustains its austere mood. Frank's text, as usual, I'm employing the English translation by Francis Brown, found at BachCantatas.com, reads, Come into my heart's house, Lord Jesus, my desire. Drive out the world and Satan, and let your image renewed within me shine in splendor, away loathsome horror of sin. The prevailing key is B minor, but we get some glimpses of a more serene D major when the text refers to God's image shining in splendor. And of course, Bach touches on various other keys in passing. The somewhat mournful descending melodic line that begins both the opening cello line and the sopranos naturally plays an important role throughout the aria, but there are some long graceful melismas as well, and altogether there's a great deal of melodic variety in this aria despite its, for the most part, consistent mood. It's a time. 
We return to a more confident, even triumphant mood with the next movement, a rousing triple-meter variation of the chorale melody with a unison chorus quoting the melody over a busy and energetic accompaniment and with the orchestra also drawing from the theme during the instrumental interludes. The text is again based on Luther's hymn. And if the world were full of devils and they wanted to devour us, then we would not be very afraid we would still be successful. The prince of this world, however grimly he presents himself, can do nothing against us, since he has already condemned a little word can fell him. begins somewhat tentatively as it delivers Frank's words about taking your stand by Christ's blood-stained banner. But by the time the soloist reaches Frank's urging to march joyfully to war, the tone seems quite different. So The alto tenor duet that follows is one of great serenity in G major from the opening oboe da caccia and violin duet in close imitation to the tender harmonies between alto and tenor, who alternate between a relaxed homophony, both singing more or less in the same rhythm, and a gentle trading of phrases back and forth. It's mostly sweetness and light as the text reads, How blessed are those who bear God in their mouths, but more blessed is the heart that bears God in faith. But it's the more militant middle section that may be the most interesting. As the text reads, such a heart remains unconquered and can strike its enemies and will in the end be crowned after death has been defeated. Both voices become more animated, especially at the mention of striking one's enemies. And although it is clear that death has been defeated, it is perhaps not so clear what the cost of that victory is, at least in the short run, as some newly interjected chromaticism darkens the texture and suggests a little tonal and emotional ambiguity. We'll listen only to the gently flowing first part of the duet. Thank you. 
There is neither emotional nor theological ambiguity in the final setting of the chorale, for which Bach resists the temptation to punctuate the victory with trumpets and drums. In the end, at least for this cantata, it's more a question of quiet faith. One of the better-known cantatas from the Leipzig period is BWV 140, Wake Up, the Voice, or the Watchman's Voice, Calls Us, or simply Sleepers Awake, performed first in 1731 and based in part on the gospel reading for the day, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, and more specifically the hymn by Philip Nicolai dealing with that subject. This is another chorale cantata, and the chorale plays a major role in three movements, including, not surprisingly, the first. But the chorale melody is not immediately present in the opening chorus. The first thing we hear in the somewhat unusual key for a cantata of E-flat major is more notable for its rhythmic persistence, a series of repeated notes in dotted eighths and sixteenths over a descending bass in three-four time. The overall effect is rather like a dignified procession, and, as Craig Smith has pointed out, it's not unreasonable to suggest that this processional music is a reference to the wise virgins themselves. The first distinctive new melodic idea occurs in the fifth bar. It has its own characteristic rhythmic identity, combining sixteenth notes and tidyth notes, and, although its outline echoes the ascending triad that marks the beginning of Nikolai's chorale melody, this theme is independent of it and destined to play an important role as a countermelody to the chorale theme and to be heard independently in various transitional passages. Here's a simplified version of that theme. This theme is passed back and forth between violins and oboe and, combined with other ascending scale passages and the eventual recurrence of the dotted rhythm pattern of the opening measures, fills up the 16-bar instrumental introduction before the voices enter with the chorale melody. The chorale melody unfolds in long note values, primarily whole notes, in the soprano, in a technique we've seen before and similar to what the Renaissance would have labeled a cantus firmus while the other vocal parts eventually join in and provide a faster-moving accompaniment to it. Craig Smith has also suggested, very persuasively, that the other initially lagging voices may represent the foolish virgins late to the process because of their initial lack of preparedness. He also points out that as later phrases of the chorale melody make their appearance, the accompanying voices manage to catch up and in the end actually anticipate the arrival of the chorale melody. Is long-range musical symbolism of this sort possible in Bach, the sort of device that would almost certainly have to be pointed out to the average listener before they would notice it? 
Perhaps more so than for any other Baroque composer, the answer is that it is quite possible, although also quite difficult to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. The chorale melody on which the movement is based is a long one and a bit more complex than usual, so the entire movement unfolds at a leisurely pace. Breaking up the melodic quotation of the second half of Nikolai's melody is a rather elaborate Alleluia section, for which the dotted rhythms of the opening bars recur, and the countermelody referenced earlier plays a big part. We will hear only the beginning of the movement, which makes use of the first part of the chorale melody. author of the libretto used for the movements not derived from Nikolai's hymn is unknown, but he or she wanders far from any ideas about the nature of responsibility and preparedness, and instead draws inspiration from Solomon's Song of Songs, most notably in the mutual expressions of love between Jesus and the soul. This is introduced by a recitative that follows the first movement, in which the daughters of Zion are urged to eagerly greet the bridegroom. We'll omit that recitative and move on to the third movement, the first of the two duets between the soul, sung by a soprano, and Jesus, sung by a bass in dialogue form. In the text, the soul first sings, When are you coming, my salvation? Jesus responds, I come, your portion. The soul, I wait with burning oil. Jesus, open the hall. The soul, I open the hall to the heavenly feast. Jesus, come, lovely soul. The movement begins with a long and exquisitely sinuous C minor melody played by the obligato instrument here, a violino piccolo, tuned a minor third higher than a traditional violin. The violin's introductory melody provides, in simpler form, much of the material heard in these back-and-forth exchanges and in counterpoint with them. Thank you. 
The fourth movement is a remarkable one. We return to the chorale text. Zion hears the watchman sing. Her heart leaps for joy. She awakes and gets up in haste. Her friend comes from heaven in his splendor, strong in mercy, mighty in truth. Her light becomes bright. Her star rises. Now come, you worthy crown, Lord Jesus, God's Son. Hosanna. We all follow to the hall of joy and share in the Lord's Supper. Although the chorale melody is directly referenced again and again by the tenor soloist, it is not what we hear first. Instead, we are treated to a wonderful tune, remarkably simple in its basic outlines, but extremely expressive. There are four main components. Here is the first in a simplified version for piano. Simple enough, but unusually well integrated, with falling and rising seconds abounding as it circles around a tonic E-flat major chord. And even without an obvious harmonic context, the tune obviously contains expressive leaps, leaps that seem to suggest movement from and to non-harmonic tones. The next idea is more rhythmically consistent, made up mostly of flowing scale-wise sixteenth notes. The third idea is in some ways the most compelling. Its use of gentle syncopations and large leaps tends to suggest an effective tone. I'm going to stop short of saying sentimental here, but seemingly designed to arouse an emotional response. The fourth and most well-developed idea combines some of the distinctive rhythmic patterns we heard in the theme quoted in the first movement with the more flowing 16th note scale passages we heard a moment ago in the second idea. These four parts flow effectively together in order to generate a melody which is catchy and whimsical. But when the entire melody is used as a counterpoint to the tenor singing of the chorale melody, the various component parts are no longer always heard in their original order. The first idea is heard twice in a row, followed by the third and then the second and then the first again. The fourth component is only heard in normal sequence as the tag for the other three. But nevertheless, it is remarkable that these different component parts, which seem initially to imply different harmonic backgrounds that don't necessarily fit with the chorale melody, can be switched around the way they are and, although admittedly sometimes adjusted slightly to the new harmonic context, still make a perfectly sensible and even charming countermelody to the hymn melody. It's a wonderful movement, and the countermelody, in its infinite adaptability and flexibility, makes the borrowed chorale melody seem absolutely fresh again.
The base recitative that follows speaks as Jesus to the soul, reassuring it as the bride I have chosen for myself, to whom I have betrothed myself from eternity to eternity. We'll hear just the beginning. The next movement is another duet between Jesus and the soul, this one showing a more sprightly mood, buttressed and encouraged by a light and lively oboe. The text is again in dialogue form, although the voices also join together more frequently in this case. The text, My friend is mine and I am yours. Nothing shall divide our love. I want to gaze on heaven's roses with you. You will gaze on heaven's roses with me. There will be fullness of joy, there will be delight. The final movement is a simple and straightforward setting of Nikolai's noble hymn. We now turn to some examples from Cantata BWV 51, one of Bach's solo cantatas, Shout for Joy to God in Every Land. It's generally assumed that Bach resorted to solo cantatas, this is one of the four he composed for soprano, because of his heavy workload at Leipzig. There was simply not enough time to compose, prepare the score for, and rehearse a totally new work for every Sunday and feast day. Working with a single soloist along with the orchestra would have been much simpler than dealing with the whole chorus and multiple soloists. The fact that Bach was able to compose as many new works for these occasions as he did in his first two years at Leipzig is a minor miracle, so it's no wonder that he eventually resorted to borrowing from his earlier self, earlier cantatas, some of them secular, and instrumental movements. Of course, Bach's production slowed down noticeably after his second year at Leipzig, 
and eventually he seems satisfied with performing cantatas by other composers, including a number by his cousin, Johann Ludwig Bach, alongside his own. But BWV 51, likely first performed in 1730, still remains something of a puzzle. We know that Bach's chorus employed boy sopranos, no females allowed, but as many commentators have pointed out, this work would seem to require the technique of a professional singer, not one of his regular choir boys. Bach's regular chorus parts were often more than challenging for his amateur boys, even those on scholarship, as it were, to sing in the choir. And of course, as the years went on in Leipzig, Bach complained more and more about the declining abilities of the singers at his disposal. But the virtuosity required to perform this work was substantially greater than that required for even his most complex choruses. So, who sang the part for cantata number 51? Some scholars opt for the presence of an unusually gifted boy soprano available to Bach at that time. Others suggest that the work was originally written not for performance at a Leipzig church service, but for a court performance that would probably have used a professional female singer, perhaps even Anna Magdalena herself. At any rate, it's a formidable cantata, not only for the soprano soloist, but also for the solo trumpet that serves as the concertante accompaniment for the solo voice, matching it note for note in its virtuoso requirements. The text draws on a hymn by Johann Graumann for its fourth movement, and the text for the second movement is drawn from Psalms 138 and 26. The author of the text for the first two arias is unknown, although there is some speculation it might have been Bach himself. The opening aria begins, Shout for joy to God in every land. All the creatures contained in heaven and earth must exalt his glory. And to our God we would now likewise bring an offering since in affliction and distress at all times he has stood by us. second movement is an accompanied recitative and an unusually florid one at that, with extended melismas at the reference to weak mouths babbling about his wonders. The full text, we pray at the temple where God's honor dwells, where his faithfulness that is renewed every day rewards us with unmixed blessing. We praise what he has done for us, even if our weak mouths must babble about his wonders, yet imperfect praise can still please him. Thank you. 
next movement is a continuo aria, devoid of the vocal and instrumental fireworks of the first aria, and more pensive in mood, but still requiring substantial control on the singer's part. The text is, Most High God, make your goodness new every morning from now on. Then to your fatherly love, a thankful spirit in us turn through a devout life will show that we are called your children. The fourth movement pairs the soprano with a couple of violins and continual, the soprano singing the well-known chorale melody, with the two violins chasing each other around the soprano line in a flow of mostly sixteenth notes. For the triumphal Alleluia movement that closes the cantata, the trumpet joins the soprano soloist for more joyous vocal fireworks, including some high notes that Bach's boy choristers are never asked to negotiate. Thank you. 
It's beyond the scope of these podcasts to give a full description of Bach's career in Leipzig, dealing sometimes successfully and sometimes not so successfully with the powers that be, but it's a fascinating story. Two recent books of immense value for learning about Bach's life and works at Leipzig and elsewhere are Christoph Wolff's Johann Sebastian Bach, The Learned Musician, and John Elliott Gardner's Bach, Music in the Castle of Heaven. Both of these books will do an excellent job of filling in the many gaps in our coverage of Bach's life and works and provide original and convincing interpretations of Bach's music and the circumstances in which he composed it. Another excellent recently published book in a slightly different category is Exploring the World of J.S. Bach, A Traveler's Guide by Robert L. Marshall, a noted Bach scholar, and Trotta M. Marshall. While the book is in fact a travel guide exploring the cities and regions with which Bach was associated in his long career, it is much more than that and provides a series of wonderful insights into Bach's life. There's one more book I'd like to mention at this point, Michael Morrison's Bach and God. While it's true that the libretti used for Bach's cantatas and other liturgical choral works were generally supplied by other authors, we've already mentioned Salomo Frank's name several times in this connection, and Christian Frederick Henrici, better known as Pickender, was a frequent contributor of libretti at Leipzig. Bach did make some occasional changes in some of the libretti he received, and, of course, his interpretation of the poet's words, as expressed through his music, was quite personal. Marson's book takes an in-depth look at Bach's own personal theology, certainly linked to the Lutheran mainstream in the first half of the 18th century, but not without some distinctive features, and how that is applied in his choice of texts and music. For listeners more interested in that aspect of Bach's liturgical works, it's an extraordinarily useful book. In the next episode, we'll take a look at Bach's secular cantatas.